A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week are all about partnerships gone wrong. Getting into business with a friend to open up a restaurant may have proven to be deadly for one Pennsylvania mom. Police say that her eight-year-old son, who was picked up at school at the school bus stop by the accused killer, may have provided police with a key piece of evidence to solve his mother's murder. But first, a love triangle involving two police officers ends tragically when the female cop finds out that her cop boyfriend is having sex with another woman in an undercover patrol car. How Viagra and Cologne set off a cascade of events that ended with the other woman dead and the female cop going to prison for the rest of her life. We are recording this on Wednesday, February 15th of 2023. Our guest today is Mike King, a former law enforcement professional with over 28 years of service. Mike is also a published author with expertise in violent crime and the creator and host of the podcast, Profiling Evil. Mike, welcome back to the program. How are you? I'm well, Anna. Thank you. It is so good to be back with you. It's good to be with you. Last time you were joining us from Australia. It was very cool. <laughs> it, that was that was crazy. And what, what a neat thing to be able to do that virtually and still be able to connect with you. So again, thanks for inviting me back. And it's always a pleasure to be with you. Oh, we love having you. We, we love the idea that all of our guests bring a unique and different perspective to crime, solving crime, and justice, that elusive term of justice, and what does it mean, and how do you get it? So let's get to our first case. It's out of Birmingham, Alabama. Now, this is a very complicated love triangle, and Mike, I always say on this program, love triangles never end well. Someone (laughs) always gets hurt, either emotionally or sadly, when it comes to this podcast, Usually someone is very seriously injured or murdered. You cannot play with emotions, Mike, right? Holy cow. I I just can't believe in this case is going to really bring that to the surface, isn't it? How emotionally involved people can get to the point that they abandon every bit of reasoning and uh, every bit of professionalism that they have. Yes, because we're talking about cops here, you know, and they have to be held to a higher standard because of the position they hold in society as far as, you know, not just keeping the peace, but about investigating and people's rights and all of that. So, you know, we expect cops to know and do better. And in this situation, you know, the badge and all those years of training really went out the window when jealousy and rage flew in. Uh, it's, you know, in that sense, this is very typical. So let's, let's get to it. So, um, the reason this is so complicated is because you've got two police officers who were in a relationship. Okay. And they were also living together. And then when one starts cheating on the other (laughs) and of all things to be caught in the act, having sex, doing the nasty there in an undercover patrol car, 
It's just, and that car, that patrol car is one that was used by the two officers. They used to work in that car. So you can imagine, I'm just saying, not defending anyone here, but when you're standing outside that car that you work in with your partner, who is your partner in life and and your partner on the police force, and he's doing it with somebody else, it's, that's rage. Rage. Well, you know, Anna, the thing that really troubled me was right out of the gates, this couple, these two cops, have already been violating all kinds of departmental policies, I suspect. I agree with you. There's, there there should have been someone, someone of cool head <laughs> should have prevailed here. But no, yeah. no. So, you know, the female detective, the one who spotted her boyfriend in the car with another woman, is the one who unloaded her service revolver. And she ends up killing the other woman The boyfriend is spared. It's unclear whether she was targeting just one or both of them. Um, There's a little contradiction in versions of what happened. And then the other thing is that the boyfriend, the guy, the cheater, he lies to police initially when they arrive on the scene. He has a dead woman in in his undercover patrol car. And he tells police, Oh no, it, it, it was, um, there were some young, um, African American men that, that's who did it. Okay. So he initially lies to police to cover up. We don't know whether he's covering up for his girlfriend or whether he's covering up for the embarrassment that he's having an affair with this one and she's dead. Yeah. Yeah. I I was waiting for him to come out with something like, hey, I had an informant in the car and I was getting some information and somebody opened up on us. But this thing is wacky from the get go. And and I'm with you. She unloads her service weapon, 15 rounds, and he's not hit. Now, her her allegation later, her, her claim is that I was firing wildly. Well, I'll tell you what, he's the luckiest guy on the planet then and probably the least lucky right now. Right, on both counts. Now, for some of you who follow us, that's a lot of you, we covered this case on the podcast when the murder first happened. And there were all sorts of questions, things that didn't make sense about this because police were only revealing some of the details. So it was really unclear what was going on here. And now we know a lot more because of the trial. And that's a lot of information came out. In fact, uh, the female detective who was charged with murder has been convicted. But when she took the stand, she gave us a lot of background. If you are to believe her version of events, and there's a lot about what she says that logically makes sense um, about what triggered everything. Okay, so we are talking here about the murder trial of 42-year-old Alfreda Fluker. And she's the one who's answered so many of these questions. And her boyfriend also took the stand. Alfreda has been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for killing 43-year-old Kenesha Fuller and attempting attempting to kill fellow cop and boyfriend Mario White. Okay, so Alfreda and Mario are in a relationship. Mario is cheating and having an affair with Kenesha. And in the middle of all this, a human life is lost. We have lost Kenesha. Kenesha is murdered. So Alfreda and Mario worked at the Birmingham Police Department, and they were in this long-term relationship living together. And that is when Alfreda discovers Mario's stepping out on her. Now, investigators say she tried to kill Mario and her lover, 
specifically at that moment when she found them having sex. Now, Mario went on the stand and said, oh, no, no, we were just talking in the car. We were talking. We weren't having sex. Really? Really? Uh, I don't know how many people talk with their clothes off. That's an interesting part. Yeah, yeah. I'm not believing him here. Okay, so Mario did not help matters on the night of the murder, okay? Obviously, he is a victim here, but I want all of you to weigh in on how things could have been handled differently for everyone involved here to maybe avoid a situation like unfolded. So this is hours before the murder, all right? So remember, they live together. Mario takes a shower. It's about 10 o'clock at night. He's showering. He pops a Viagra, and he puts on his best cologne, and he says to his girlfriend he's going to his cousin's house. Okay? All right? Really? We need our cologne and Viagra to visit the cousins? I don't think so. (laughs) So then... They get into this heated debate. This all is coming from the testimony. They get into a massive argument. And Alfreda claims that Mario threw her against the wall and that she used um, a tracking app to find him, followed him. And this is her testimony. She testified that she found him in that undercover patrol car with an SUV parked side by side and that she found the two of them having sex in the vehicle she works in. There you go. So that's her version. We're going to get more into detail, of course. But, you know, again, and I want everyone to weigh in here. Absolutely, under no circumstances, is the solution to this problem to harm or kill anyone. But what the hell was Mario thinking, flaunting this in front of his girlfriend? What are you doing? Yeah, did it did it actually come out that he was flaunting, splashing cologne, taking a Viagra? Or has she been keeping track of his count of Viagra and the moment he leaves because she's already suspecting something? Because if we look into her background and some of the things that that I found really intriguing about uh, searching into this woman who was murdered, uh, her background, running her plates, checking out who she is. All of that suggests to me that this wasn't a surprise on the night of the crime. Right. Was it a surprise? Was it not? Depends on whose version of events you believe. But I do believe that was the inciting incident. I do believe that Um, this, cause you can picture it, right? None of it's making sense. It's 10 o'clock at night. Someone's getting ready to go out on the town. And, um, those two things like, yeah, the cologne, that's it. (laughs) Um, that's really fascinating. Was this the thing that triggered it? Was he working a, a night shift too? Why is he taking his police vehicle on a personal run to his cousins? Was it a car per man or car per officer program where they're allowed to drive it off duty? I mean, I I ended up getting so many questions on this one, Anna, that I I kept thinking these would really help us understand how much premeditation or how much uh, building up on the fire of emotion that were going on versus all of a sudden this cataclysmic emotional breakdown that causes a homicide. Oh yeah, absolutely. And 
I, I don't know the answer to that, right? Because yeah. it we're depending on people's version of events. Obviously, two people in a relationship are always going to see things very differently. And this is very emotional. And I, I don't mean to repeat myself here on, on this idea of love triangles, but so many of you always comment about this. When you play with someone else's emotions and they feel betrayed and they are in love, you know, it it creates um, a perfect storm for someone to completely lose control and not think clearly. Again, this is not the solution to the problem, but how do we contribute to these problems? So a little bit of background here on their relationship. So Alfreda Fluker is a mother of three daughters, and she was living kind of like a common law partner husband with Mario. And um, they began living together. They were actually living in Mario's mother's house, okay? And um, they moved in sometime in 2016. They probably were dating for about a year. And Alfreda had been with the Birmingham police for 15 years. And they were both assigned to the crime reduction team at the time of the incident, which is what you were referring to, Mike. Like, why were the two of them in the same unit? But this happens yeah. a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the problem with these kinds of secrecies or, or maybe the problem with departmental policies that make it so difficult for people to have a relationship and yet still continue their job. So I don't know whether this is an indictment on the organization and the, the pressure that they placed on officers or if these two wacky souls just decided we're not going to tell anybody about it. Yeah. So let's go to the night of the murder. It was April 10th of 2020. And Birmingham police respond to a 911 call of shots fired at 1151. So just shortly before midnight, the 911 caller was actually the off-duty detective, Mario White. He was found uninjured in this unmarked Birmingham PD vehicle. And there was a woman in the car. She'd been shot several times. And of course, that is Mario's lover, Kanisha Fuller. She's rushed to the hospital, but she's already passed of her injuries. She'd been shot in the leg, the arm, and the head, and the shot to the brain was the fatal one. Again, it's very interesting. She for sure is shot, and he isn't injured at all. You know, so, one of the things, mm -hmm. uh, can I ask a question, Anna? Do you recall, uh, I, I remember reading when this originally came out that it initiated as a shot spotter call, which is just little microphones that are placed throughout a city to listen for gunshots going off. And then that sends an alert to the dispatch center to send out the officers. And, and I know there were subsequently some later 911 calls. But um, I, I just wonder if that initiated the call to where there was no turning back, if this might have been an entirely different attempt at a cover up versus all of a sudden the cops are coming because of the shot spotter. I think two things happened. I think I read that as well, that that happened, um, the area that they were in. I mean, because it was a lot of shots. So it's not like no one would have heard it as well, yeah. in addition to the surveillance. But what what investigators say is that Mario took his time calling 911. He delayed yeah. in calling 911. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering, did he realize, did he know that there were units responding to shots fired and then he's deciding that he's got to call in? And one of the things that Alfreda never did 
Because remember, she's supposed to, there, everyone here is supposed to be defending life. She never called 911 to help that woman. So one delays yeah, it, wow. right? So Mario allegedly delays the call. That's what investigators say. And, and keep in mind, he has not been charged here at all with anything, even though he allegedly lied to police and sent them in a different direction. So again, the, the response, the 911 response is what I find troubling is the delay, the delay here. Um, yeah. What we don't know um, about the differing accounts here, again, when Mario responded and, and started answering the questions and leading cops in a bunch of different directions. You know, he said several black males were responsible for the shooting. He said he could not identify the shooter. This is according to authorities. He could not identify the shooter. And then when the state police take over the investigation, thank goodness, because they had to, you can't have your own police department <laughs> no. investigate you, especially with all the mess and the complications of the relationship. So finally, the the um, Alabama State Police get involved and take over in the investigation. And that is when prosecutors say that Mario finally admitted that it was his girlfriend, Alfreda, who had shot them. Man, oh, man. Can, can you imagine what's going on in their minds as they're trying to fabricate these different uh positions and different alibis uh this one was crazy so alfreda gets arrested the next day it doesn't take long to finally get to the bottom of this um a capital murder warrant was later issued she was taken into custody without bond and of course she was immediately fired from the police department and then mario decided to resign probably a wise thing to do prosecutors allege that alfreda fluker fired 15 shots from her service weapon at Mario and Kanisha. That's a lot of, that's a lot. Now, investigators say that the bullets used to kill Kanisha matched Alfreda's service weapon. Not much of a surprise here. Um, authorities also said, this is in addition to, because who knows how strong Mario's testimony would have been in this case if you only had his word to rely on it that apparently cell phone data and license plate readers put Alfreda at the crime scene at the time of the crime. Additionally, there was that. So when the, there had been some delays with the trial. In fact, they um, had trial uh, initially set for September of 2022, but there was a mistrial because of alleged juror misconduct. So then we try this again. So when the trial finally gets started, Alfreda's defense team um, said that this was a reckless act, but that it was not premeditated and that it was heat of passion and that she didn't mean or intend to kill anyone. When you fire that many rounds and you're a police officer, I don't know. Mike, you tell me. Is there... Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, Anna. I mean, I'm having a really difficult time. Number one, I go back to again... Uh, 15 rounds that were directed at this young woman, not at her boyfriend. Apparently, somehow he uh, removes or comes out of this thing unscathed. If 15 rounds are being wildly fired into this vehicle and she's hit three times and, and he doesn't have anything, that, that to me is kind of an interesting piece of evidence that should be discussed. 
uh, that training that she went through as a police officer to, to not only have target acquisition, to know what she's shooting at, but then to know what the legal ramifications and requirements are to shoot a weapon, I think also up the game on this one. It was interesting to have her take the stand in her own defense. I always feel like it's a tricky thing. Generally, it's not done because it's very dangerous. It opens up a lot of things. But I do believe, and I have seen this, that if the person on the stand can explain certain things that are not making sense to the jury and helps to fill in some key puzzles that might leave a seed of doubt, then maybe there's a reason yeah. to take the stand. And so if she's claiming that this was emotional, you know, heat of the moment, not planned, then, you know, maybe her telling the details of what was going on and that, you know, he allegedly threw her against the wall that day. I don't know. I don't know if that would have worked. There's a lot of evidence here. And look, everyone can understand how horrible it feels when you are scorned, but we all know that there are many ways to deal with that and murder is not one of them. So, yeah, you know, there I, is I a limit. All, yeah, I'm with you. I think of all the times in my lifetime I fell in love with someone that didn't care much for me. I don't remember ever getting a gun and going out and solving the problem that way. And, and I think the challenge, I, I love the idea of a defendant taking the stand to say, here's why I believe it was a crime of passion. But when you start adding all of the other evidence on top of that, like uh, doing a background check on her uh, weeks before, doing license plate checks on her vehicle, uh, all of these things tell me that this was something that was bubbling and brewing, not that it was a heat of passion that all of a sudden I found out my world has collapsed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she describes how she became enraged that night um, and that she, you know, saw him leave the house at 10 and how she followed him. All of that, you know, she shared. And um, she describes finding the SUV parked to that unmarked, parked next to that unmarked police vehicle. And again, Mario took the stand. He says, oh, yeah, we were just talking. Well, if you needed to talk with her, you could have called her on the phone. Okay? Could have called her. You didn't need cologne for that. And you sure as heck didn't need Viagra to get on the phone with her. Okay. So she testifies, Alfredo testifies about um, the argument in the house uh, and her at the scene. So Alfredo told the jury that um, when she grabbed her service weapon from her vehicle and, be, and you know, she starts firing, she said that she had no intentions of harming anyone. She said, quote, that she, this, I mean, woman scorned here. Alfredo says on the stand, quote, that she wanted Mario to know to stop playing with me and I wanted him to respect me. I hear you on that one. I do not doubt that those were her emotions at the time. It's like, oh, no, you didn't. However, she could have just screamed at them. <laughs> right? Well, and, and isn't the, uh, to me, the response I would have is, if this is how you respect me, I don't want you ever in my life again. I'm, I'm not going to kill the other person 
person and then say, now, you, you, have you figured out how you have to keep in line with me? <laughs> that just is weird. Yeah, I absolutely got to show him the door. So um, after she fired her weapon, she claims that Mario re-entered the park in his vehicle and that the couple got into another fight. Don't know if this is true. Here's what's concerning me. Like, so wait a minute. If this is true, that the couple is actually arguing after she's fired her weapon, that means Kanisha is in the car fighting for her life if she's still alive while these two are still having an argument about their relationship and no one here is worried about the woman in the car who is either dying or dead. Yeah, yeah, crazy. You know, and morally, the fact that no one is trying to render aid and both of them are first responders who are capable of doing that, again, morally, you showed what it is you two cared about. And it sure as heck wasn't the other woman, including you, Mario. You didn't care about her either. So way mad at all of them. So it was a jury of three men, nine, excuse me. It was a jury of three women, nine men. They reached their verdict on November 18th of 2022. And it took them a little less than an hour to deliberate. However, the jury did have questions, and I have a feeling this may come up in possible appeals here. The jury requested um, clarification from the judge on the difference between attempted murder and first-degree assault, because, again, it has to do with intent, and each degree carries different sentencing guidelines with it. So Alfreda was convicted of capital murder in the slaying of Kenesha Fuller and her attempted murder of Mario White. Fluker's defense says that they plan to appeal this verdict. And the reason that the defense is upset is not just with the verdict, but they're saying that the jury should have had the ability to contemplate other charges, such as reckless murder, reckless manslaughter. And that's why I was asking. It's like, what does justice look like in this case? But remember, a life has been lost here. So Alfreda has been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. That happened February 6th. So I'm asking all of you to weigh in on YouTube. What do you think? What do you think is justice in this case? What do you think happened? I, I can't wait to hear what you all have to say about this. Our next case is out of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, where a missing mom has been found buried in a shallow grave. And her friend, who was also her business partner, has been charged with her murder. Now, to add to the creep factor here, police say that the accused killer picked up the victim's son from the school bus stop after the murder. Why? As to not call attention to the fact that the mother could not pick up the child and therefore everyone would have said, where is she? So he concocts a story, tells the little boy, oh yeah, your mom needed, she needed to take a break. She needs some time off. So you're going to do a sleepover at my house. Okay. But since the boy knew him, it is entirely possible that he could have done a sleepover. Nonetheless, you know, that part of it is very calculated based on what police are saying. So obviously, you know, that would have been the first time that anyone would have noticed that mom was not around. We're talking about 43-year-old Jennifer Brown here of Limerick Township. She was reported missing on January 4th of 2023 this year by by 
her friend and business partner, the one who picked up her son at school. Okay. He's the same one who calls her in missing. And her partner is Blair Anthony Watts, who is 33 years old. Two weeks later on January 18th, her body's found in a shallow grave in Royersford, Pennsylvania. Mike, how often do you see that the person calling in the crime or the missing person is the person who later is charged with that person's murder? You know, sadly, I've seen this happen quite a few times, and I think it's all a really interesting guise to try to redirect the attention to other places. Uh, We see it when we see like a Scott Peterson showing up at his wife's search parties and and, uh, making appeals to the public to help. We've seen it over and again. So the day that Jennifer disappeared, her business partner picked up her eight-year-old son from the bus stop, as we said, and he said, you know what, you're going to have a sleepover at my house. But of course, they didn't have anything, so they had to stop at you know, the little boy's house at Jennifer's house. So the boy, this is according to police, um, the boy stayed in the car and waited outside while Blair Watts went in to get stuff for the sleepover. Uh, What is interesting, and this is a key piece of evidence that police were very interested in. The little boy notices that when the man, Blair, gets back to the car, notices that he is holding in his hand his mom's cell phone. It's absolutely clear to him that it's mom's cell phone because the screensaver is a picture of him, the little boy. Who else is going to have this phone? That is going to be important. Why did he need her cell phone? Because if mom's taking a break and you're taking the child, then mom's going to need her cell phone to be updated on how the little boy's doing. Logic. Yeah, that and what a, what a sharp kid to be able to say, yeah, I noticed that and it it stuck in my mind. Absolutely. So um, that ends up being a very key piece of evidence, along with the fact that the medication was not in the boys overnight bag, all these other things that didn't make sense. A little bit of background on the relationship between Jennifer and Blair Watts. So they were friends, they were business partners, they were collaborating on reopening a restaurant named Birdie's Kitchen. And they were pretty close um, as far as um, things like, for example, Blair had a key to Jennifer's house. Obviously, that's how he was able to get in and get the stuff for the little boy. So they were fairly close. And the little boy referred to Blair as Mr. Blair. So he clearly knew who this was. And it was a, you know, man absolutely known to the family. So the restaurant deal was something they'd been working on for some time to get this thing together. Police say that going back to August of 2022, Jennifer entered into this partnership to invest in the restaurant and that they looked at property and it was going to be called Birdie's Kitchen. And that, you know, would have been around January of 2023. You know, again, they're working on the sign, all that stuff. But the property managers, the folks who had, I guess, control of the property that they were looking at, said that no renovation work had been performed on the building to prepare. So they certainly weren't as close as maybe he would have suggested. And that on December 28th, the property owners told Blair that they really can't move forward with the lease, you know, because there's a lot that wasn't happening. And again, Mm -hmm. police aren't providing all the details, but it sounds like either the money wasn't there or there was a holdup here, 
in negotiating the deal over this property. And then Blair threatened to sue the property owners. So things are getting a little heated here. Blair, let's get back to Blair and the little boy. So Blair picked up Jennifer's son after school on January 3rd. Again, he claims it was a planned sleepover. Obviously, Jennifer is now missing at this time. And who are they going to question? The little boy about, you know, what was going on in mom's life. Kids know everything. I always believe that. Kids hear everything. Kids see everything. You know, they're they're a wealth of information. (laughs) Never never assume they're invisible. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So... This is interesting because the little boy, according to um, records that have been provided and also published reports, said that Blair had explained that mom was grocery shopping. Well, which is it? Is she taking a night off or is she grocery shopping? You know, what what sense does that make? Then the most puzzling part was sending the son without his medication for the sleepover. Mm -hmm. Just didn't sound like Jennifer. Now, before Blair Watts was charged with Jennifer's murder, he appeared in court. She's already missing, okay? So she's missing. And before, you know, he's been charged, he appears in a Pennsylvania court on a completely unrelated matter. This is something from November where he was charged with threatening a neighbor. Never great, but it's an allegation. So I want to play for you this video in this interview that was done by NBC 10 in Philadelphia. And you're going to hear, for those of you who are listening and not watching, you're going to see uh, Blair standing there with his attorney at his side. His attorney is Christopher Mandracci. And, and Christopher, the attorney, is doing all the talking. But for those of you who are listening and can't watch... What I find puzzling about this video is why is Blair standing there eating? He keeps putting things in his mouth. And I don't know, is it like a mint? Is it a, but it's not just one thing. It's another. You're on camera. You're being interviewed. You're being questioned, right? Publicly about, um, the disappearance of your business partner. And, you know, this is a very serious matter. And the man is putting food in his mouth. Anyway, take a listen. It's sad to lose a, a friend and we have no further comment because of the current situation. What is the current situation? I mean, there's been nothing. They haven't even determined how she died. So. We don't know the situation. We just know that um, there's ongoing investigation and um, that's where we're at currently is this ongoing investigation. My client's innocent and he's done nothing wrong and he will continue to um, stand on that ground of his innocence. So, Mike, I don't blame the attorney for doing the talking for Blair. Blair is probably not the one who should be talking, and he apparently did talk to reporters earlier on. So he probably, you know, it's never a good idea to talk. But then I guess maybe from someone's perspective, if you don't talk, do you look guilty? I don't know. But I think the attorney should have done the talking here. But I don't know what Blair was doing, what he was putting in his mouth. Like, why are you doing this, Blair? And then he's got a smirk on his face. He's got a little expression on his face. Yeah, I, this this guy is is really interesting to me. And uh, you know, you go back to those 
charges that he was facing. I did a little research on that. And what I found was that he had like a harassment in and that he had a, a no contact order. And, and of course, there were some other traffic violations and things like that in his background. But it makes you wonder if there was some violence in his background that we're going to see uncovered as time goes on and if that will ever come out as part of this whole story. And I find myself wondering, OK, we're never going to hear from his attorney but I wonder what his wife's saying. You're talking about Blair's Blair. wife. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wonder what he's saying about uh, uh, Blair Watts bringing this child home, about this scenario that he's got, how they came to know each other and go into business together. I mean, there's a lot of information, like you said, that we haven't had released that I think is going to really clean up and clear up this picture. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot that we don't know, especially when it's so very early in the investigation, even though there's been an arrest. We haven't really, really um, been told a lot of details about manner of death and that information. Now, his attorney, Blair's attorney, went on after he was arrested and charged with Jennifer's murder his attorney made this statement that Blair is, quote, innocent until proven guilty. He is not a killer and intends on fighting and, prov and proving his innocence. It's a shame that the district attorney's office states allegations as facts in an attempt to taint the potential jury pool. So we want to be clear here that while Blair has been charged in this matter, his attorney says that he is innocent and that he will be proven innocent. So let's get into some of the details that authorities have released about um, some financial money, some, some money transfers. Authorities allege that two cash transfers were made to accounts owned by Blair Watts on January 3rd, key date here. One transaction placed at 4.23 p.m. was $9,000 that was made to a cash app in the name of Birdie's Kitchen. So, you know, if the dispute is over um, a business deal, I don't know what this means. The other one took place at 435 and it was a Zelle transfer to an account called Birdies, a different account, but similar names. And according to investigators, this transfer was for $17,000 and was not part of the signed business agreement between Jennifer and Blair. So that right there, Mike, is a key reference to there was a business deal in place between the two of them. And this was a real financial deal that the two were working on. So I'm sure that there are more details there. Yeah, and that's what's going to be so interesting to see what we learn by seeing the actual document. Was there a contract in place that the two are participating in? We we know from that earlier statement that you made from the property owners that there were only a uh, word of mouth contract between them and the property owners. And because they could never put deposits into place or make renovations or show any thing in a good faith way that was showing they were moving forward, the property owners withdrew. But now you got these crazy transactions and the way they came about, I think was really interesting. In, in what sense? You mean the timing of it? Well, not only the timing, but in the press conference that the police department held when they made the arrest, just that simple utterance by the chief when he said, 
Interestingly enough, there were three attempts to make those transactions. They were being made from her iPad at a time that they believe was after the homicide occurred. And that in order to get that transaction to finally go through, someone went in and removed the two uh, factor authentication off of the iPad before making those two transactions. And of course, the transactions went to Watts uh, through the Birdie accounts. Mm, yes. Very important to have that two step <laughs> authentication. Very important. Yeah. And you know, doesn't that make you wonder, Anna, if he was there with the victim, now deceased? And using facial recognition or a fingerprint in order to pull this off. And how creepy is that if that's going on? Yeah, that is very, very scary. That's very scary. On January 4th of 2023, Blair Watts, I know we're just going back to him calling the police department because this is important, to report Jennifer missing. It's just interesting of all the people that could have reported her, he chose to do it. I don't know why, because he could have just not, right? Just because you're a business partner, the obligation is not on you to, except for the fact that you are in, you have custody of her child. And there's no way to explain this away. Yeah, yeah. And aren't I the good guy for looking for this poor woman who dumped this child on me? And I'm trying to help you all find out what's going on here. According to authorities, Jennifer's Car, keys, wallet, and purse were all located at the time that she was reported missing. However, what was missing? Ah, the cell phone. The cell phone with her, which her son recognized and maybe, maybe was needed um, as part of, you know, um, carrying out what the police say would have been these transfers and any information that may have been needed from her iPad and cell phone. The cell phone data later determined, this is according to police, that Jennifer's cell phone was allegedly traveling in conjunction with Blair's cell phone. So like parallel pingings to suggest that they were in close proximity, whether that means that the two humans are there with the cell phones or the two cell phones are there and only one human is there, we cannot say for sure. This all was going on until 7 a.m. on January 4th, and then the cell phone is no longer active. So, except for the brilliant um, decision of that child to say, I know that that was my mom's phone and she wasn't in the car with us when we were driving around during that time period. So there you go. The little boy, the little boy was key to all of this. The owners of the property said that um, while it was intended to become Birdie's kitchen, they told detectives that uh, Blair had shown, had showed up. At the property, this would be, again, January 4th, the key date. Without notice, no one was expecting him. And according to the property owners, they told police that Blair said he now had the money for the lease. So if that is accurate and true, that could explain what the holdup was, that the money hadn't been transferred yet. Or if if Jennifer was providing the money that and whether she was you know, delaying it. We don't know. We don't know the details, but now he had the money, which means he could go ahead with the restaurant if this is true. Yeah. Now they've got both phones. Isn't it going to be something if they pull out text messages (laughs) where 
between the two of them where she starts expressing, hey, I'm a little uncomfortable with this partnership and I don't know if I want to be a part of this. And we start to see something that starts to lay a motive down for murder. And we also don't know who else Jennifer talked to as part of this. Presumably she's going to have an attorney and maybe a CPA and other people involved in this decision. And they may know a lot more about what was going on with this deal or not going on with the deal. Here's what's also interesting is that Police say that when they searched Jennifer's house, they did not see any obvious signs of struggle. And now I'm going to ask you to help us here with with what the canine uh, indicated during the search. So they brought in a canine dog named Patton, dear sweet Patton, trained in cadaver detection. Mike, there are so many canines and they all do different things. Please explain yeah. to us the significance of this and how this would be used different from any other canine. So the amazing thing about cadaver dogs is they actually are trained for that significant scent that a body gives off once it transitions from alive to dead. And there's a different scent. And these dogs are able to pick that up. And of course, we know that dogs have a, a sense of smell that is so much better than ours. But the dog is trained to go in and search around an area. And if it discovers that scent, uh, it will they call it indicate. In most cases, it means they'll either sit or they'll lay down. And uh, that's that's the indicator that they have found something. And that leads the investigators then to collect a, a swatch of ground or a place or dig and get the, the evidence so that they can then go in and forensically examine it under a microscope. And that distinction is very important on scent because it's one thing to say, oh, we picked up Jennifer's scent. Oh, she could have been in the car. That wouldn't have been weird. It wouldn't have been weird because they were business partners. However, if this particular dog, Patton, picks up the scent of someone who is deceased, that is that is a totally different story that dog is helping to fill the puzzle in on. Right. That's right. And that and that dog has a scorecard. And in court, they're going to have to reveal, here's how many times we've tested him and how many times he's successfully found this amidst others. You know, recently I helped on an, on an old unsolved homicide case where we dug up a piece of ground that we believed was a place where the body might be buried. We mailed that off to some canine handlers in Texas who had never been associated with it. We had three different packages sealed of this dirt. They placed it in a mile radius field in three separate locations, sent two cadaver dogs out, and the dogs found all three pieces of dirt and laid down when they saw them. So uh, many years ago, I would have been saying, this is a little bit of voodoo, but I have learned over the years that those dogs are amazing and they are amazingly accurate. Oh, I love that. No voodoo with dogs. We love them. (laughs) We love all dogs. (laughs) So this is what Patton allegedly found. Patton alerted in the kitchen of Jennifer's home, which is important. Again, the scent that Patton allegedly picked up on was a a corpse, deceased. Not live Jennifer, because obviously live Jennifer would be all over the house. Then... Um, The dog also picked up on a dumpster outside the house, which could have which could mean what, 
Mike, would it be Jennifer or maybe something associated with Jennifer, let's say like, I don't know, a bloody rag or something like that? Yeah, I think it could be either or and and more likely because of where we know she ends up that uh, she probably wasn't dumped in her body, wasn't dumped in that dumpster. But certainly in an effort to clean up the crime scene, someone could have thrown something in there. So another forensic sweep found um, something that was black and white and marble plastic bits. Like it was very hard to identify at the time what it was, but it was significant in the sense that the dogs found it and it was embedded in the carpet right outside the kitchen. Again, little bits of black and white plastic. And you're like, what is this? Ah, when they find Jennifer... Jennifer's body, they figure out what that is. They were little bits and pieces of a hair clip that she had. Bingo. Yeah, and what a a compliment to that police department to collect that evidence rather than think, oh, this is kind of a dirty, filthy house that somebody didn't vacuum the floor very well. That was so significant to them. And that dog's alerting was so specific that they said, we don't know what it is, but we're going to collect it. And you know what? They collected it with no idea that it would ever come out and mean anything. And this dog was not done yet. So authorities (laughs) then got search warrants for the two vehicles driven by Blair, a red Jeep Cherokee and a gray Jeep Renegade, which was owned by his wife. Bring back our friend Patton the dog. Patton is not done. He's been working really hard here. What does Patton do? He indicated in the back seat of the Cherokee as well as the floor mat behind the driver's seat in the Renegade. So that is now two cars that Patton has signaled on. Authorities believe that the dog's findings indicated that Jennifer's remains had been in both vehicles and that Blair drove them with her body in those cars. So I don't know uh, whether he allegedly, again, um, he and his attorney say that they're innocent, that they didn't do anything. He didn't do anything, but police are indicating here the possibility that I guess the body would have been transferred from two cars. So it's, it's either that the bodies were transferred in two different cars. And remember we have from January 3rd till the reporting on January 4th, sometime during that night is probably when she is disposed of and ends up in that final disposal site. But it could be that uh, it was the body transferred from one vehicle to another, or it might've been that there was a transfer when he went from one place to another with that body residue on him. Mm, Interesting. Okay. Jennifer Brown's body was finally found on January 18th of 2023 in a shallow grave behind a warehouse in Royersford, Pennsylvania. Jennifer's body was reportedly discovered by a warehouse employee who went out for a smoke. She was allegedly in that grave with the matching hair clip that authorities found pieces of. Additionally, You need to remember in this area right now, police are looking at all of the surveillance cameras and security cameras in this warehouse district to figure out what, if anything, is there. That has not been shared yet publicly, but clearly they're looking. The coroner concluded that the death was indeed a homicide, but the manner of death is unspecified. And I don't know if it's unspecified because they don't know or they're not saying. Either way, we do not know. 
It so was. One thing that I would mm-hmm. maybe add there, Anna, is that also the state of decomposition after that long really makes it hard to, to say, well, I could see bruising on the neck or I could see something that suggested outside of uh, physical things like a broken hyoid bone or or what we learned in this case. But but now seeing that span of time that you've just given us makes you, and I, I didn't say this earlier because I wondered if this would come out, makes you wonder if that body was disposed of in one location and then in the process of cleaning hands, he says, oh man, I got to move it to a different location that's going to be less, uh, that will point further away from me. And uh, the location that they end up in is about eight tenths of a mile from the home where she was killed. One of the things I think that would have helped with preserving the body is the fact that it was January in Pennsylvania and it was really cold. But what we don't know is how quickly the body was transferred into the ground and whether it was kept in the car, because obviously it would have been much warmer then or in the house. All of these things we just, we don't know. Uh, A little bit of detail though, the coroner did say that Jennifer had suffered three broken ribs before her death. They did release this. And then there is a theory that possibly this could have been a compression asphyxiation. Again, we do not know. We do not know the answer to that. So Blair Watts was arrested for the murder for, for the murder of Jennifer Brown on February 9th of this year. He was reportedly arrested after appearing at that Chester County, um, case that we played a clip for you of. He's facing charges of first-degree murder, third-degree murder, which is interesting. I don't know why you charge both. Theft by unlawful taking and disposition and and access device fraud. Very specific. Every state has their own, um, you know, types of uh, charges and things are called different things in different states in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So... Well, and that that's interesting because that device fraud, I think, is going to take us right back to that iPad and that transaction with her iPad that sends it. So it's unauthorized use of her personal uh, PDA and uh, sending that uh, information. The, the transaction will be one of those charges as well as we kind of look at this thing unfold. Well, we will... Uh, Keep an eye on this case, as you know we do. We follow these cases, and when we get answers, we love to share them with you and update you. It is time for our comments section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on social media, and our producer, Will Updike, is here now. Hey, Will. Hey, Anna. How's it going today, Mike? I'm doing well, Will. All right, good to see you. So this week we have a case of a school employee who flew off with 11,000 cases of chicken wings, which totaled, and get this, an alleged $1.5 million. Uh, So this case comes out of Chicago, Illinois, where a 60-year-old food service director was arrested and charged with theft after an investigation found she allegedly stole these thousands of cases of chicken wings, which, as I said, they are alleging totaled over one. $1.5 million in theft. So the suspect here, Vera Liddell, um, ordered these cases of chicken wings from a distributor and used a district-owned van to pick up the food. Um, And she she paid for these using Harvey School District 152 funds. So 
She was the director of this, uh, you know, of this food program for children. And when this fraud started, it was really at the height of the COVID pandemic. So in this particular school district, the kids weren't allowed to be physically present at the schools due to the danger. So they were learning remotely. But the school district did this really great thing where they were continuing to provide meals for the students and the families could come and pick them up. Uh, and now prosecutors are alleging that these chicken wings and possibly other food that Liddell may have ordered was never brought to the school or provided to these students. So a business manager ended up uncovering all this for the school district. Um, and basically, the, the school district, they were $300,000 over their allotted food budget. And they weren't even all the way through the year yet. So, the, you know, they're, they're trying to put things together. Uh, and this business manager discovered all these individual invoices, which were signed by Liddell for these massive quantities of chicken wings. And the kicker here is these chicken wings are an item that's not even served to students because of the bones. Uh, so it's not something that they, they, <laughs> I never thought. Of that. Yeah, it's not something that they would ever even be ordering. And so Liddell r r allegedly had this food distributor invoice the school district for the wings, and she allegedly ordered these from separate uh, from from other items. So there's kind of like two POs going on here. Um, and this all reportedly occurred between July 2020 and February 2022. Little under uh, a year and a half there, 11,000 cases of wings. I don't know the math off the top of my head, but it seems like an awful lot. So she uh, has been charged with continuing financial crimes, enterprise and theft exceeding $1 million. Now, she was booked into the Cook County Jail on $150,000 bond. She's reportedly posted bond. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how this goes uh, when when she eventually goes to trial. And I will try to keep people updated as we get more information. Um, but, you know, obviously people were blown away by this like level of theft and how it was was able to go on kind of undetected for so long. Dark Artist said, now I have seen everything. Never thought I'd be alive to know someone stole one point five million dollars worth of wings, which I had to read through. Like I had to, I checked multiple sources and had to read through this story so many times. Cause I was like trying to do the math on 11,000 cases of wings, $1.5 million. That is, uh, that is wild to me. Um, but where are the wings? What happened to the chicken wings? So that is another thing that we don't really have the answer on yet. Like, I'm not sure if she was like backdoor selling these. Uh, we'll get into it in some people's comments, but some people had their own theories on this. Theodore S said that Super Bowl party was about to be lit. Uh, <laughs> yes, plenty, plenty of wings for that. Uh, it would be more exciting than the eventual end of this last Super Bowl, but that is a conversation for another time. Flash said Granny was trying to open up her own chicken spot. Her restaurant was going to be called After School Wings, which I, I, yeah, like I don't know. I I, I really, how do you move eleven thousand cases of wings? Like just the logistics of it baffles me. And I I, like, how do you even find somebody to sell this stuff? Right. Like, where it, did the chicken wings go? Yeah, like either you must, you have to like have a food truck or something, or I I don't know how you even like advertise that you have eleven thousand cases of wings to sell. I mean, obviously it was portioned out over this this period of years, but like where do you solicit someone to sell these wings for you or to buy these wings from you? And you have to store them. I presume they were frozen or were they I, fresh? I, I mean, I, I I it's unclear, but I would imagine that they were frozen. Um, you know, and, and I'll tell you what, Will, I'm thinking about how many chickens it takes to do 11,000 cases of chicken wings. And that might explain the egg shortage we had this year. 
Well, oh uh, Can- Candy G has a, a, a similar thought. She said she was part of the wing shortage, which does coincide with that really weird period of time where like restaurants were having trouble getting wings. I was having trouble getting wings at the at the grocery store and whatnot. Wingstop was going to change their name to Thigh Stop. It was all just a whole big mess. Uh, and, and, you know, these timelines definitely uh, it, it, they definitely coincide. Scorpion's Oracle said she was the wind beneath all the wings, which oh. uh, I, I, I got a kick out. Of. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, there's still a lot of unanswered questions about how this all went down um, and, and, and where these wings are now. But uh, as I get more information, I will try to keep everybody updated. Uh, but while I'm here, I'd also like to highlight a couple of our fantastic listeners. Uh, we know that y'all are passionate out there. We, we, we love that you tune in with us every week or, or, or whenever you, you, you find the time to work a into your schedule. Uh, but and, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this one right. But the McGinnis family out of Naples, Florida said, love to listen while walking my dog. Uh, and what shared, a beautiful dog, right? Yes, share oh a lovely my... picture. Uh, of, and the of palm the... trees and the blue sky. So <laughs> yeah, pretty. Yeah, just gorgeous. <laughs> um, and then uh, Tina from Fremont, Ohio said, I watch while I work from home. Can't get enough of my daily dose of crime. Thank you so much. We can't get enough of you list of you listening to us. Uh, so and, and also just for everyone out there, if you'd like to be featured on our show in this segment, go ahead, tag us on Instagram or Twitter. And just to clarify, that handle is at Crime Watch Daily. I know it's a little confusing because the show is True Crime Daily. It, it's a it's a long story. No, the um, show and, is Crime Watch Daily, and this is true crime. I know I'm not going to get into it. You've told me not to get into the weeds about this. Um, but what I I loved about Tina's picture that was just so lovely. You know, um, we were up the the last show with Tracy was up, and you could see it. But what I loved was there um, on the windowsill of of this picture. For those of you who are listening, were were some fuse bead artwork. And um, it's just, oh, I, I love that only because I've got a tiny one that my son made. Look, the, the, my son's going to be 24, but I still have all the little things that he made. So it just touched my heart that, you know, whoever was listening to us at that time had their child's art up that was very cool. And I did notice yeah. that. Oh, yeah. It looked like a very tranquil work from home space. But yeah, for everybody out there, we, we, we'd love to thank all of you for listening and making True Crime Daily a part of your day. And yeah, tag us. Let us know how you watch or listen. Uh, we'd love to feature on the show. But that is going to do it for me. Uh, that's today's that is this week's comment section. And I will see you all next week. Bye, Will. So, Mike, I know you're always up to something. Anything new that we should be watching out for? Oh, thanks, Anna. You know, I released a video last night on Profiling Evil about a 70-year-old murder in Australia that I think we solved. And it all started with a trip that I made several years ago, back in 2019. I appeared on uh, National Australian News that was talking about the oldest cold case in, in Queensland, Australia, of a woman named Betty Shanks. And I, I gave some just kind of simple question and answer pieces that sound bites but I ended with people get the courage after many years to step forward with information they wouldn't have shared years earlier. And in this case, I hope that happens. I got off a plane in Los Angeles, the phone call on my, uh, in my text message or I'm in my voicemail messages was a man, a thick Australian accent who said, my father killed Betty Shanks. And uh, so I went back and spent a couple of days with this man traveling through the crime scene, walking where Betty was was murdered, talking to the homeowners where she was murdered. And we put this actually what turned out to be a beautiful story of a man who faced 
abuse throughout his childhood, witnessed his father murdering this woman and finally talked about it. And uh, and so, yeah, come over and watch that because it was just so touching. And we had him on uh, last night for a live for a few minutes just to talk about the experience. So who killed Betty Shanks? Very cool. Thank you, Mike. And um, you. what's your handle on social media? How can people find you? At Profiling Evil. So uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just the at sign Profiling Evil. And we'd love to have you visit. Thank you. Oh. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. And you can find me at Anna G News with one N. You can find this episode and all our episodes of wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We've got more than 5 million subscribers. Sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.